really, this is so interesting. It is so cool. I think this is one of the most insightful subjects that the Bible has for us, and yet it's a challenge sometimes. But I want to invite you to hang on today. We're going to look at something that just is so important and so much fun and so insightful, so exciting, so beneficial. Hang on. It's going to be a great ride. We're going to talk resurrection today on Faith Is. And I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm so glad you joined us today. We're going to have such a such a good time looking at this passage in the Bible, such an insightful adventure talking about this, such an, ins, um, an interesting attempt to unpack what this passage from the Bible is talking to us about so that we can have more confidence in, in our Christian faith, more confidence in God, because this is faith is. This is the place where we help each other develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I'm so glad you've joined us on this journey. It is, it is a thrill to do this with, with you. And it is so much, so much benefit when we help each other strengthen our confidence in God, because God wants us to trust him. He wants us to have confidence in him. He doesn't want us to wonder about him or to doubt about him or to shrink from him. He wants us to have confidence in him so that we will respond to the love he has for us, and he, he will then encourage us and draw us into that real dynamic that the Bible talks about, where we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. And we can do that as we develop this confidence in God's trustworthiness, because as you know, love is a risk. And when you risk loving God with all you've got, when you risk loving your neighbor, then you have to have confidence in the God who is behind all of that, that he will be with us and he will be reliable, dependable, what do we say? Trustworthy. So we want to develop that kind of faith, that kind of confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I pastor a church in Cape Coral, Florida, Diplomat Wesleyan Church. And we're happy to bring you these programs because we want to help each other develop that kind of confidence in God. And we need that confidence in today's world because there are all kinds of challenges all around us. And we want to help each other have that deep, settled confidence that will stand up to all the challenges and that will get us through and not just survive, but to be able to thrive and not just manage, but be able to have so much confidence in God that we live the life God intended us to live. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be timid. We don't have to be anything but resolved in our trust and confidence in God, and we can have peace of heart and peace of mind. So let's plunge in to where we are, and let's talk about this very interesting subject. Now, last week, we talked about what the Bible says is most important, or one English translation, the New International Version, says it's of first importance. And we talked about that from 1 Corinthians 15, and I gave credit and will give credit again today to a book that helped me a lot, written by a man named Scott McKnight. It's called The King Jesus Gospel, and I really recommend that if you want to understand 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to understand what gospel that Paul 
preached and the apostles preached. That's what you find in 1 Corinthians 15 in those first few verses. It doesn't mean other things that you've heard talked about or called gospel are necessarily wrong or that we shouldn't talk about them. We use this word gospel in a lot of ways. I think we understand that, and we sometimes have to be careful about the context of the use of that word. I hope we all understand that. But if you want to understand the gospel that Paul proclaimed, then that's what you find in 1 Corinthians 15, particularly beginning with verse 3. And that's what he helps the Corinthian church understand. That's what he wants us to understand. So if we want to understand the gospel that saves, the gospel that they've proclaimed in those days, that's where you start. There are other ways to proclaim and to explain the truths of the Bible that are sometimes called gospel. There are other helpful explanations often called the plan of salvation. But if you really want to understand the gospel that came from the apostles, that's 1 Corinthians 15. And if you really want to delve into it carefully, and I encourage you to do that, Scott McKnight's book is not complicated. It is important. It is detailed. It's a serious look at the Bible, but it's not written in a way that's complex or uh, academic-ish or anything like that. You can understand it. It may take a few readings. It may take a little thought, but you're up to that. And uh, if you really want to understand better, that book will help you. The King Jesus Gospel by Scott McKnight. So what does, what does the Bible tell us is of first importance or which, what is most important? Because in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, we read these words from the Christian Standard Bible. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then it goes on to talk about a lot of other appearances. So we boiled that down last week. We were talking about this. We said the gospel that Paul proclaimed, and yes, this English translation and others probably, I, I don't remember all of them, this, this says that Paul preached this gospel. Remember, when you see preached in the New Testament, you can think proclaimed. We use the word preach in a more technical sense of what a pastor does in church, but proclaimed is the idea. You don't have to be a pastor or a preacher to do this. Sometimes people think they see that word preached and they say, think that leaves them out. No, it's, it's what would you proclaim? What would you tell someone? And so what, what gospel Paul proclaimed was boiled down into four important points. First, Christ died for our sins. And he adds in that first statement, according to the scriptures, and that's important because all of this is built on what was talked about in the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. So this is not anything out of the ordinary or beyond what they have a frame of reference to understand. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Two, he was buried. A key point. Three, he was raised on the third day. And again, he adds, according to the scriptures. So he's very careful to, to make sure he connects this story of Jesus, who died for our sins, who was buried, who was raised on the third day, to the scriptures that they trusted and, and understood and had confidence would tell them the truth. So those are the three things. Christ died for our sins, was buried, was raised, and finally 
that he appeared, and it mentions Cephas, another name for Peter, then to the 12, and then he goes on to 500 people and some others, and to James, and finally, lastly, to Paul. And that reference that he appeared to Paul, who is writing this to us, was when Paul saw the Lord on the Damascus road, and it changed everything for him. So this is what the apostles called the gospel. This is what he says clearly here, and, and he mentions that in verse 2. Uh, this is the, the message by which you are being saved. This concept that there is a new king, his name is Jesus. And here he refers to him as Christ, the anointed one. Christ died for our sins, was buried, was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and then appeared to many people. And by the appearance, it became something that could not be explained away. Something clearly happened to this man named Jesus, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and then appeared. So, so many implications from this, and you can explain many other things, and, and it connects many other dots in the story of the Bible. And that's why Paul says, according to the scriptures. So Christ died for our sins. That would have been something they would have understood in a different way than we do. They regularly made sacrifice, sacrificial animals died to atone for the sins of the people. So they understood that concept differently than we do. We don't understand it that way because we live after Christ when the final sacrifice was made. When we understand that we are guilty and there is a penalty for our sin, we then can look back and say, Christ died for our sins and, and atoned for them, was the substitute for us and made the perfect sacrifice for sin. So Christ died for our sins. We don't have to wonder what God wants us to do about our sin. We know that Christ died for our sins. And so we have confidence that we can be forgiven that's what the Bible teaches us, because Christ died for our sins, and what God wants to do now that that wrong has been made right by Christ's death, God wants to offer us forgiveness and allow us to enter into the benefit of that sacrificial death. It goes on to say he was buried, so that's the normal consequence of death. But then it says he was raised on the third day. And we talked about that a little bit, this idea that he was raised. He didn't raise himself. He was raised, reminds us that God intervened. And here was Jesus who really had died. He was raised on the third day. Now, it's important to think about that raised on the third day and, and ask ourselves, now, why a specific time period? Well, one of the obvious things is that it wasn't a resuscitation. It wasn't as though people thought he died and then he revived. No, he was clearly dead. He had been buried. There was clear evidence of death, but now clear evidence that Christ who had died and was buried is now raised because God intervenes and gave life to his body. And he then came back to life and appeared. And here again, why appeared? Because then there became proof that could not be explained away when he appeared to all of these people, the man who had been dead, who had been buried, who was raised and is now alive. And so this is the, the powerful truth that Messiah had come to change everything for us, 
And now we had the opportunity and the privilege and the invitation to enter into God's saving power. Okay, that was last week, re-summarized. Re now, I want to take another portion of this 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this week and talk about it. And it gets a little dense, but one of the really interesting things is how, how we can learn to, to understand even a dense portion of Scripture. So let me read this, and uh, you try to follow along. When I read these kind of things, it's a little interesting, and, and we'll talk about that. But let's just read it together. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 12. This, again, is the Christian Standard Bible. I like that one, that translation, this English translation, because I, I just like the way it helps me understand. Again, you don't have to like the same one I like. Find an English translation that you can read and understand. One of the reasons I like this one is because it deliberately attempts to be readable and understandable but also specific and faithful to the original text. And that's a challenge for every English translation. I just think this one does a really good job of it, and I benefit from it. Uh, it's a little trite to say I like it. I mean, what I mean when I say I like it is I, I find it helpful in understanding what God is trying to communicate to us. So that when I use this Bible and when I use it for careful study, it is considered a standard English text. And there are others. That's, that's why I say you need to find the one that, that will help you the way this one helps me. But it's a standard English text that I can trust its usefulness, and I can trust that it will help me get to the truth. I don't st strictly stick to this one. I consult others, of course, and other people's work and help and all of that to understand the sacred story because God gives gifts to a lot of people, and those gifts are for all of us to benefit from. But anyway, Christian Standard Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God, because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And we're going to stop right there because that's about enough of a, for us to handle today in this time. Now, if you were listening to that, and you had heard me say what I just said earlier, that I like this English translation because it helps me understand, you might have been listening to that and, and, and wondering how all of those words and the, the density of ideas in there helps me understand. Well, I want to explain what I mean by how it helps me understand, and maybe this will help you as you approach various places in the Bible and try to understand them as well. Yes, absolutely true. When I first read through a passage like this, and I've read it before, this isn't the first time I've read it, may not be the first time you've read it, but 
consistently when there's a lot of this uh, language and, it, and it's, it comes across to me as a little dense. It comes across to me as like my eyes glaze over or my brain kind of goes on flutter and say, wait a minute, there's too much here to grasp what is really going on here. Now, if you respond like I do when I read a, uh, an important passage like this or a, a, a dense, fully packed full of ideas passage, yeah, I, I think, wow, there's a lot here. What's going on? And, and I genuinely feel at first reading like, oh boy, what's going on? And uh, it's, it could be, uh, I've refused to let it because I've just, I'm just stubborn that way. I've made up my mind. I'm not going to let the Bible intimidate me because God gave it to us for our understanding, not to intimidate us. And by the way, that's really important. Remember that God gave the Bible to us so we could understand him, so we could understand ourselves, so we could understand life. So as it says earlier in chapter 15, so that we could be saved, delivered from sin, saved from a life of meaninglessness, saved from a life of futility, saved to something important, saved into the kingdom of God. So when, when you approach the Bible, always approach it from the perspective that God is trying to communicate something. He's not trying to hide things from you. And we need to learn how to, how to take courage, how to trust God and how to have confidence that God wants to help us. And then we listen to and learn from people that God has helped understand that. I'm fully convinced that God helps some of us understand better than others of us because that's our gift to the church. And I hope one of the things that I can do in these times is take some of these more complicated things and make them simple. It's not because I want to puff myself up. Don't, don't think that at all. I'm regularly amazed at how God helps me with these things. So, so you can share that amazement if you want, or you might just kind of shake your head and say, there he goes again. I get that too. But God seems to have given me the ability to look at some of these things, to study them, to sort through all of the information, and then hopefully communicate it in a way that, that people can understand better. Not every person has that same gift. That's why we need each other. You do things in your church and for the kingdom of God that I can never do, never. And I'm regularly really pleased when I see people stepping up and, and using what God has helped them do better than I could ever do, and they just go do it. That's, that's one of the most thrilling things in life for me. And I really like it, especially when they don't seem to think there's something wrong with me if I'm not doing what God has gifted them to do. They seem to recognize that God is working in them, and they should be responsive to that. That's just, uh, uh, to me, that's just, so that's just another cool thing. It's a little off the subject. We did talk about that a few weeks ago when we talked about this idea of, of God giving gifts of grace to, to every, every believer. But here we are at 1 Corinthians 15, and we started with verse 12, and, and it's a rather dense passage. Now, when I started looking at that, I recognized right away that something was going on here that would help me understand. I didn't realize the full extent of it until I started working on it a little bit more, but it reminded me of geometry class in high school. Anybody remember high school? Uh, some of us fondly and some of us not so fondly. And when I say geometry, some of us, our brain really cramps at that point. Well, I don't remember a lot of the things that, that I was supposed to learn in geometry. Uh, I didn't dislike it, as I recall. I don't remember thinking I was particularly good at it. I, I guess I did okay. 
looking back, when I began to understand better, this was many years after I got out of high school, I wish I had understood geometry in the same way I think I began to understand it then. And, and I wish I could have, in that sense, applied myself better to it. But uh, that's, that's just the, the liability of uh, being in high school. Sometimes you understand some things better than others, and sometimes you miss things you later wish you had gotten. Good news is if you, if you miss something in high school, you can find it again. So if you find yourself wondering about a hole in your education because you remember something you didn't really get, you're not, not too late now. Go back and figure it out. There's plenty of resources for that. Well, anyway, in geometry class, one of the things I remember, one of the few things I think I remember anyway, is, is the concept of if then statements. And, and I don't remember how it was explained to us. I mean, geometry class was pretty much the same every time. And I thought at the time, I thought that was a little curious because it, it I mean, it was just routine. We would go to class and the teacher gentleman would explain a concept and he'd do it on the, on the blackboard chalkboard at that time. We didn't have all the fancy tech stuff in those days, but he would explain the concept to us and we would listen and try to follow along and grasp what he was teaching us. And then he assigned us a certain number of problems that we were supposed to work on and solve on our own. So in a 50 minute class, we might've had 20 minutes of instruction. And then he gave us 30 minutes to complete what amounted to our homework assignments. And so we had every opportunity if we applied ourselves to finish our homework during the period of that class. And, and of course, all of us liked that idea that we didn't have to do it at home. But as I've looked back on it, it was really brilliant because what he did was he, he explained a new concept and then he was available and he would walk around the room. And if we needed help, he would offer that help. And if we didn't, he would just let us do our work. And the, the brilliance of it was that a new concept, he was there ready to explain if we had missed something or didn't understand it, he could then re-explain it or put it in a different language so that it made sense to us so that we could then solve the problems and learn the concept of geometry. Well, all of that to say this, one of the interesting things I remember from geometry, or I think it was in geometry, it's been so long ago, I could have been a different class and I'm just remembering wrong. But anyway, I give geometry credit and this teacher credit was an if then statement. If this is true, then this follows from that. So it's an if then statement. I was kind of fascinated by that if then statement idea. I thought that was just really interesting. I don't know why. I just thought that was really interesting. So I started looking at 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 12, and I began to notice in this English translation, at least, there were a lot of if then statements. And so when I was thinking, how am I going to unpack this to make sense of it? Immediately, this idea of if-then statements made sense because I realized that the passage communicating in an if-then style would then help me identify the ifs and the thens, and in that way, I could follow the flow of the author's thought. And so I began to look at that through that lens and say, and began to make myself some notes. I said, I started out with if, and so then I would put the if statement and then I would look and say, oh yeah, it says if, if this, and then I would say, oh yeah, and it means then this has, has to follow. And that made a lot of sense as I be, began to, um, to process these, these verses. So for example, I went through them and came up with these 
if-then statements. If Christ is proclaimed as raised, then how can you say there is no resurrection? That makes a lot of sense. If, if we're telling you that Christ was raised, he's alive, then how can you say there is no resurrection? So it poses a question for us to answer. He then goes on in verse 13, and if there is no resurrection, then not even Christ was raised. Well, I can look at those two verses now, and I can understand. If Christ is alive, if Christ has been proclaimed as raised, then how can anybody say there's no resurrection? Because the proof is he was raised. So how can you ask, how can you say that? How can you assert there's no resurrection? And see, that was, that was an issue. That was an issue that Paul was trying to clarify. It's an issue we need to come to grips with because resurrection is so pivotal a concept. Then in verse 13, he, he takes it different direction and says, and if there's no resurrection, then not even Christ was raised. So, so these things can't be true. They're, they're, they don't line up. They can't all be true. It, something has to be correct and something has to be incorrect. And of course, what he's saying here is that Christ was raised. Like you said earlier, we talked about it, Christ was raised on the third day. So he's clarifying that, that concept so that they would have to think that through on a careful level, and, and we get the opportunity to think it through on a careful level. It goes on in verse 14, and he says this if statement, if Christ was not raised, if Christ is not alive, then our proclamation, our message to you is in vain because we've said he's alive. So if Christ is not raised, then our message to you is in vain, and so is your faith. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Why would you believe in a, in a dead Savior? If Christ has not been raised, our message to you is in vain, and your belief in that message is pointless too. It's in vain as well. So we, so we get that out of verse 14 when we read that, if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. So now you begin to realize that he's putting a lot of emphasis on this idea that Christ was raised on the third day. And that's a very significant, very significant contribution. I've said in the past, and I haven't changed my mind, that the the truthfulness of the Bible, the veracity of the Bible, rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus. That's why resurrection is such an important concept. So, so far we've had several, I count three, if then statements, if Christ was proclaimed as raised, then how can you say there's no resurrection because Christ being raised from the dead is evidence of resurrection. And looking at it from the other way, if there's no resurrection, then even Christ was not raised, and, and you believed he was. So this is what he's getting at, trying to help them realize they can't, they can't believe everything. They have to make a decision about this. And then in verse 14, if Christ was not raised, then our message, our proclamation to you is in vain. And why bother? Why bother? Like decaf coffee, why bother? If Christ is not raised, why bother? Our proclamation is in vain. And and so is your faith. Why would you believe it? Because if Christ is not raised, what is there to believe? There's, there's nothing there. 
And so you get the idea that these if-then statements are really helping us sort this through. Now in verse 15, there's a, there's a little different way that, that the language is, is crafted. And we see the, the, um, the, the, the statements, uh, the way I looked at it, were reversed a little bit. Instead of being if-then, we, we see things that start out on the then, and it leads to the if. That's, that's kind of the way I looked at it. So in verse, four, or, sorry, verse 15, it says, Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God, because we have testified wrongly about God, that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. So he puts the if statement at the end of verse 15, and I know you can think about the way this might work together in different ways, but he says at the end of verse 15, if the, re, re, if the, the, excuse me, if the dead are not raised, easy for me to say, huh? If the dead are not raised, then he says, we are revealed as false witnesses about God. They haven't told the truth because we testified wrongly. So you see, he's really staking a lot of importance on this idea that Christ was raised. A huge amount of importance. If the dead are not raised, he says, then he says it, it destroys our credibility. We are revealed as false witnesses about God, and you shouldn't believe what we say because we testified wrongly. Well, that's the if-then idea. We're going to take this a little bit further, but just to give your brain a, a rest, we're going to take a break here in a minute. But think about this. Go back to the text and, and, and look at how helpful that is to think in terms of if-then statements, that God gives us clarity on this, because we can understand, and he wants us to understand the Bible. Remember, he wants you to understand the Bible. It's not a book meant to be obscure. It's a book meant to be the revelation of God to us so that we would understand God and what he's up to. And we're going to do that some more. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. This is Faith Is, and we'll be right back. I'm excited to talk about a new product from Healthy Cell, AC11. This is a patented bioactive extract of Uncaria tomentosa from the Amazon rainforest. It supports cell DNA repair and health span. It's a dietary supplement. I'm excited to try it. Many are interested in longevity and attenuation of senescence. We know that telomere length and other uh, biologic measures are related to senescence in uh, 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 clinical and uh, preclinical studies, particularly of animal models. And I can tell you as a doctor, dietary supplements do hold the promise of attenuating repair and damage in our body due to stress, physical wear and tear, sunlight, etc. And there's a tremendous opportunity for supplements to help us in this area. And so Healthy Cell has brought a product to market for you to try as part of your health portfolio. So please go to HealthyCell.com and in the promotional code, list out loud for 20% off your first purchase of products from Healthy Cell. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. One little known way to do this is by taking AC11 a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. Studied for over 20 years and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, 
taking AC11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. We are the voice of a nation, the American nation that is. This is Malcolm Out Loud. I invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com where the fight for liberty and justice continues. America Out Loud Talk Radio. back. This is Faith Is, and if you've been listening up to this point, then you know what we've been talking about. We've been talking about resurrection. And if you've made it this far, then you can make it the rest of the way. How about that for a reminder that we've been going through 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 12 and ending with verse 20, and trying to come to understand a rather densely worded passage of Scripture using the technique the, of unpacking it according to if-then statements, because that's the way it was written. A lot of if-then concepts through this section, so we've been looking at that. And um, if you're ready for that, we'll do some more. But before we get into that, I want to remind you, in case you haven't checked it out, that, that you really need to check out Dr. Peter McCullough's radio program on this network. It also goes to podcast called The McCullough Report. A lot of stuff going on around about this virus and what it is and what it means and how to treat it and all of that. And I'm not here to give you medical advice. Far from it. You don't want to listen to me for any medical advice. But trust me on that. You don't. But Peter McCullough brings the goods. He's a physician and he's done a lot of work on this. And if you're confused or concerned, certainly don't be afraid. There's no reason to be afraid. We need to just face up to this because it's it's a virus like other viruses we've had, and, and we can treat it. And he talks about how to do that. So check out the McCullough Report on America Out Loud, and I think you'll benefit from that. Don't hesitate to embrace that. He is a very down-to-earth physician, treats real people, has a real heart for that, and he studies the, the literature, and he brings report after report to bear on his explanations for his conclusions. So Check out the McCullough Report. I just thought I should give a shout out because we're interested in that which is truthful. And, and that will help you sort out all of the information you hear out there. And I believe you can trust his, his insights and use that with your own physician, your own good judgment, and you'll know better how to, to uh, navigate these days with this virus. So, well, let's get back to the Bible. That's where we get our real insights from God about all these kinds of things. And one of the things that the Bible is teaching us is, is about resurrection. And one of the things that we know as followers of Jesus is that resurrection means that in the end, it's going to be all right. And I like a statement I heard, I don't know who said it, but they said that everything is going to work out in the end. And if everything hasn't worked out, it's not the end. And that's true because the Bible teaches us because of resurrection, because of the hope we have of the future, and because we know that God will not leave us or forsake us, that 
in the end, this is going to be okay. And so we live in that confidence and hope. So we've been going through 1 Corinthians 15. We've been looking at the if-then statements. We finished up with verse 15, where we talked about if the dead are not raised, then there are some conclusions. And we said that this verse puts the if statement at the end, and that's okay. We can still understand it by making sense of it, making meaning out of it. We're not violating the scripture by, by taking that and, and framing it as an if-then statement. We're just trying to understand it. If the dead are not raised, then the Apostle Paul says that he and the other apostles are revealed as false witnesses about God because they testified wrongly. So he's raising all these issues to help us think through this more carefully. And we go on to verse 16. And since it's been a minute since we read verse 16, let's read it from the text again. Whenever in doubt, always go back to look at the text. That's where we want to find our help, our conclusions, our answers. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So that's a very clear if-then statement. If the dead are not raised, comma, not even Christ has been raised. So if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised, because how could you have one without the other? So see, he's setting this up by way of contrast, using these if-then statements so that we could think this through. And resurrection is a reality, so because of that reality, then the dead are raised. But he phrases it differently to help us think about it in verse 16. If the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Let's continue with verse 18. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. So here we see it. It goes into two verses here, but he says, if Christ, if Christ, now the focus is on Jesus, if Christ, what does it say, has not been raised. So there's the if statement. If Christ has not been raised, then he goes on to explain, then your faith is worthless. He described it as vain earlier. Your faith is worthless if Christ has not been, been raised. So Notice the emphasis on resurrection, and I fondly say and frequently say everything rises and falls on resurrection when it comes to understanding Christian faith. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, one. Two, you are still in your sins. Oh, that's not very good, is it? Because what he proclaimed to them was that Christ died for our sins, and so the ability to atone for, satisfy the penalty for sin, requires resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And it continues one more statement. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And third, those people who died believing in Christ died. And that's not a good consequence. He uses a different word there. Those have also perished. The point being, there has been no benefit to this message we proclaim by which you were saved. So it all hinges on this idea of resurrection. It's so significantly important. Verse 19, let's continue. More if then. Verse 19, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life 
only, we should be pitied more than anyone. So he's drawing a very stark comparison in this if-then statement, very stark contrast, and that's another way you can begin to understand the scriptures, when something is contrasted against something else, then it gives you something to think about on both sides, so you can weigh what is it saying, and what does it mean, and what conclusion are you going to come to? Well, here it says, if we have faith for this life only, then we should be pitied more than anyone. So Paul is saying, if faith is for this life, then uh, there's really no point, because as you know, the Christians in those days went through some pretty difficult circumstances. And so he says, if it's just for this life, what's the point? And, that, and that, that's a good question. We need to think about that. See, Christian faith is transcendent. It involves much more than the here and now. It's the, it's the hope of the future. It's the reason that we don't have to be afraid of death, because of resurrection. You know, I, I've sometimes said in the context of resurrection, and I, and I don't mean it to be, how should I say, too blunt or harsh, but from God's perspective, death is not a problem. It's just not because God is the God of resurrection. He's the author of life. And so Paul is reminding us here by saying, if we have faith for this life only, then we should be pitied more than anyone else. But then he makes in verse 20, a, a positive affirmation and a strong one, a strong statement. But he says, as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he asserts through all of this back and forth of if-then statements, he is reminding us of the conclusion we must come to, that Christ has been raised. He's pointing out how it can't be other than that in all of these statements. And then he finally says in verse 20, but Christ was raised. And that is bedrock right there. That is foundational. That is absolutely significant. So in all of this, what he is doing, he is restating part of and, and expanding upon part of that original four-item statement of the gospel, and he's really drilling down into the, the nuts and bolts of belief in resurrection with all these if-then statements contrasting one against another to help us think through so that we will come to the conclusion that he comes to in verse 20, Christ was raised. So what's up first important was that statement that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. Christ was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And Christ appeared to Peter, to the 12, to many others, including finally Paul, referencing his Damascus Road encounter with the living Christ. The point of that is this is the gospel that leads to salvation, because the gospel comes in a person, in the person of Messiah, born in Bethlehem, who lived sinless life, died, and became, as the Bible says, sin for us, was buried, was raised to life on the third day, not resuscitated, raised to life, was truly dead, 
and that that becomes really important because of all the competing philosophies that talk about what what is real and what isn't and and god is saying the material the concrete the reality of this matters it was a real death it wasn't symbolic it wasn't explain away explainable in some other way you can't explain it away it was a real death and god intervened and raised him back to life and then as the resurrected Lord, he appeared to many people to validate all of this so that we wouldn't, we would know for sure. We have so many eyewitness accounts and so much evidence that what other conclusion can you come to? And then Paul effectively argues in the verses we looked at today through these if-then statements, not geometry class, as I said, that's where I got this idea of if-then statements. That's where I remember learning it. But he uses those statements, that technique of literature, to communicate to us the bedrock reality that he affirms boldly and forthrightly in verse 20, Christ was raised, and he is the example for the dead in Christ. So that not only do we have assurance that Christ was raised, but all of our friends and family members, all of the people we care about who have died in the Lord, he was the example that there will one day be resurrection. There will one day be the reality of resurrection. And that truly matters. That truly is significant. Without that hope, what would we have? And he says that too in these verses that we talked about. And, and we, we must not miss the, the strength and the power of that reality. We must not overlook that. It's sometimes I, I think that it's easy for us to take this idea of resurrection for granted because, well, I can't remember a time that I didn't know about it. Uh, I'm sure there was because I was pretty young at one time. So were you, but I learned it early on. And so in terms of the way it has affected my life, I can't remember a time when I didn't know about resurrection. And I'm finding that knowing about resurrection affects life today and living today more than I realized that it would. Even though I knew about it, even though I'd heard the story, even though I never doubted resurrection, even though I was thrilled when I learned about the, the proofs for resurrection that some people have developed, uh, even beyond what we see here in the text, that, that supportive evidence, even though I'd heard all of that and read all of that, the longer we live, I think the more we come to grips with the reality uh, that resurrection matters. It, it really does. And, and I don't like the idea of death. It is our enemy, clearly. Scriptures talk about that. But I also realize that it's not the final word either. It just isn't. And we need to remind ourselves of that. We live in a time, I think you see this, we live in a time when people are so afraid of dying I mean, isn't that what has driven the, the um, public conversation about this virus? Isn't that what's driven people just to, to distraction in so many ways? That the fear that they're, they're going to die? And you know, Christians have, have known this reality for a long time, and we need to double down on this and say to people, hold on, death is not good. Uh, as a pastor, I have conducted funerals and memorial services. I've stood at gravesides of people I cared about. I don't like that a bit. I don't mean this in the wrong way 
and I'm always happy to help when, whenever somebody calls and wants to know if I will conduct a memorial service or a funeral, unless there's some reason I cannot. And, and, and really that's never happened. I always say yes, because I know that's my responsibility. And I know God wants me to help us with those kind of things. And, and as much as I dislike funerals and memorial services, just philosophically, I guess, just because I don't like the idea of death, I always say yes, because that's what we do. We help each other with that. And I want to help people walk through those days. But hear me when I, having said all that, that I'm more than happy to help. And I, and I believe God has really helped me help people through some of these kind of things, end of life situations, all the way to funerals and memorial services. Even though God helps me do that, it wouldn't upset me one little bit if I never had to go through that again. Never had to walk through an end of life situation, never had to visit a family multiple times on a day because their loved one is near death and, and I want to see them and, and help them and help the person who's going through the, the illness and coming to the end of their life. As much as I want to do that and help them, and I have gone out of my way to do that, we pastors, we do that. It would not upset me a bit to never have to do that again, because I realize the destructiveness and the, and the awfulness of death. But at the same time, I remember, and I take great courage and great strength and great inspiration from the reality that death is not the last word. And that's what we find here in 1 Corinthians 15. And in this day, when everybody is just, not everybody, okay, maybe you aren't, I hope you aren't, but so many people are walking around thinking this virus is about to attack them, as though it's a, it's a being with some ability to track them down and pounce, uh, and maybe that's an overstatement, but I, it, that's the way it seems to me. I, I just, it, it's just sad that people have become so caught up in the fear of this. That the reality is that, yes, there are things that could do us damage. There are things that could hurt us. There is a reality called death. But over all of that is a reality of resurrection. Yes, and that's because Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Christ was buried. Christ was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And Christ appeared to many people to give evidence that there was victory over death. And that's what we need to focus on. That's what we need to remind ourselves, not get caught up in the, in the hysteria and the fear. Yes, I've tried to learn about this virus in the context of all these things. I've tried to understand it better. I have a friend who helps me with that, and, and it's been very helpful because he has wise perspective. And, and I don't know what I would do if I didn't have that help. But even if you don't have that help, we do have the reality of resurrection. And that's what we need to remember. You see, we're, we're I guess it's not an overstatement to say, we're losing our minds with fear because we're letting fear drive our decision-making. And we don't need to be afraid of a virus that causes death, which Christ has overcome. 
Yes, I don't, I don't, I said it before. I said it again. People say, well, you just like people to die. No, 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 nobody does. Never, never. I'm not saying that. You, you can hear me clearly. What I'm saying is there is one who overcomes that. And that's the significance. And that's the point of the gospel that Paul preached that we've talked about and of the emphasis, the, the point that he's making in these next verses about the, the impact of resurrection. He doesn't want us to miss that because resurrection matters. And we need to think about that. We should not get caught up in this. I, I, I'm, I'm a book person. You probably realize that. And, and I noticed just uh, last week, a uh, new book coming out. Uh, if I remember correctly, the title is Recovering Our Sanity. And uh, that got my attention. But what really got my attention was some of the advertisements about it, some of the descriptions about it, that it was talking about fear. And and I've said for a while now, and, and, and with increasing frequency and um, <laughs> with increasing volume, you might say, that it's time for us to stop being afraid. Uh, it's, it's, it's really troubling to see the people of God during this time acting out of fear and responding out of fear, making their decisions out of fear, because God reminds us that we shouldn't be afraid. And so this book is talking about that environment environment of fear. And the idea is that we need to recover our sanity in the midst of all of this fear. And I haven't been able to read the book yet. I, I plan to, I ordered the book, so I'll have it when it comes out in a couple of weeks. But essentially the author is, is explaining in the, in the advertisement that if we have a right understanding of God, then we don't need to be afraid that understanding God correctly handles our fears. And so he says we need to have what he describes as the fear of God. Now I'll be very interested to see how he defines fear of God, because fear of God is not a terror like so many people have of the virus, but it is a deep respect. The Bible teaches that over and over, a deep respect that recognizes that, in case you didn't know, God is God. And we need to treat him that way. It's not something that we just kind of take as we want. It's not that, well, God said that, but I don't believe that's right, so I'm not going to bother with that. No, it's, it's a, a deep conviction. It's a deep attitude, and it's a deep decision to live our lives recognizing that we need to have an appropriate awe and respect of God so that we live our lives to please and honor God not to preserve ourselves and what we want. And that's very significant. I think one of the reasons people get afraid is because they're afraid they're going to lose something they don't think they can do without. And we should remind ourselves that what we really can't do without is God, and that we need to trust him. And we need to fear him. We need to have an awe and respect of him that reminds us to do what he says, because what he tells us to do is best for us and to avoid what he says to avoid because it's bad for us. That's why the Bible spells out sin. Sin is bad for you. God says, don't do it. And he doesn't do that because he's arbitrary in his decisions or just wants to see what he can do to restrict your life and mine. No, that's not him at all. What he's doing is saying, avoid these things because it's bad for you. So when he says, don't lie, it's because it's bad for you. 
the consequences are not good for you and for other people. So when he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, it's because we need that day set apart for him, for rest, for worship, for refreshment. When he says, honor your father and mother, it's because that's good for us. And so we need to have not a fear of what might happen because of resurrection takes away that, but a fear of God so that we please him and we walk with him in newness of life. And that makes so much difference when we have that right perspective. The right perspective is, is a change of mind and a change of behavior, a change of mind that says, I trust God, I have full confidence in him, I have faith in him, I have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And that leads to then a change of behavior, a change of life, because we start doing what God wants us to do. And that reinforces, when we see our life getting better, that reinforces that now we can trust him more. And so the cycle then begins to grow in our lives, build strength into our lives, and we get better, which is the point of the Bible. It's what God came to save us from, the bad things of life, the worst of life, so that we could have the best of life. He wants us to have the best life possible here and now, as well as one day when he makes all things new, and he will. And that's part of resurrection too. We didn't talk about that a lot because that's not in these verses, but part of resurrection is that God is going to resurrect everything and make it like it was always meant to be. And isn't that good news? Uh, absolutely, that's good news. So strengthen your heart, take courage, have confidence in the trustworthiness of God, because we want to be people of faith. And thank you again for joining me on these times. I so much appreciate your willingness to spend some time and your confidence in this. May God bless you this week and build strength and confidence in your life. And we'll pick it up again next week.